theyeshiva.net. Okay, page uh, 75, right? He says, Darizal says, and it's explained at length in Tanya, the second section of Shari Yechud everything in the world has a soul. Everything. Darizal says that even Afar, even uh, 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 Earth, yeah, glob of Earth, an Evan, a rock, certainly uh, a flower, a plant, everything, he says, has a nefesh ruchnis, has a spiritual soul, which, and he explains, because there's the dvar Hashem, there's the energy of Hashem that gives it chiyus and creates it every single moment, and that is its nefesh. Certainly an animal, and certainly a human being, and this is Jew, not Jew, this is every creature. Doimim, tzemei, In fact, Darizal said this hundreds of years ago, Today we know, the Marshall, that even what we call doimim, what we call doimim means silent, lifeless. You look at a rock, it's lifeless. We know that it looks lifeless. But internally, if you see it's pnimius, right, with a microscope, we know that in every single existent being, even a drop of water, even a, a drop of rain, I mean, Pasha, the atoms, even the atoms, you have not millions, but billions trillions, zillions, and even more of atoms that are all in a constant movement, swift movement with a perfect harmony and organization and structure, and not one atom moving, but billions, and each one, then they're all working together in perfect symmetry. So even from a pure scientific, secular point of view, it's a everywhere. It's, it's, it's lebedic. What we look at just, you know... Uh, a dead table, it's far from dead and it's far from a table. <laughs> it's far from a table. So uh, when Arizal says it has a nefesh and a chius and a ruchnius in it, so today you even have the tools to be able to appreciate it more. Of course, he's not only talking about atoms, he's talking about a, a ruchnius, the kechayis, the divine energy in it. Divine energy in it. So that's true about everything. And of course, the nefesh of Bahamas too. Everything lives from the Dvar Hashem. So in many ways, in the Nefesh of Bahamas, there's also a Nefesh Elikis. <laughs> because there's the godly consciousness that gives it its own Chayas and identity. But it gives it Chayas as a Nefesh of Bahamas. <laughs> Hashem gives it Chayas, just like He gives Chayas to the tree as a tree, and to the flower as a flower, and to the animal as an animal, and to the insect as an insect, and each insect its own Chayas. The Nefesh of Bahamas in a person, that itself also has a Chayas from Hashem. And that is its own, its own core. But what does it experience itself as? It experiences itself as an animal soul. That's the difference. In Ephesus, experiences itself as divine energy. Right? The Nefesh Bahamas doesn't experience itself as divine energy. It experiences itself as an, uh, as an animal. There's a Maimah from the Baal HaTanya. He has a sefer called Maimari Admur Hazak in a set. Over there on the bottom. Maimari Admur A Maimah that I once saw that he says, Lahavin Hatam that everything in the world is happy. All Balechayim are happy, all Tzaymeach are happy, and all Daimim are happy besides people who are miserable. Lohavin Atam, why is everybody happy besides people? No, listen, an animal feels pain, there's no question. Animals sometimes cry in their own way. Um, once you could see documentaries uh, when uh, uh, mother hen, when, hen, uh, when uh, birds lose a chick, you know, a chick in the nest dies. Um, 
or penguins, elephants. penguins or elephants, one could see a certain element of grievance, a certain element of pain. I didn't mean that there's, uh, there's no pain. Um, you know, of course there is. But judging based on our study of animals and our observation of animals, we know that usually animals are not concerned with questions like meaning and like purpose and like truth. In other words, their consciousness is basically focused on existence. And that's their beauty and that's their shlichus. That's what they were created for. You know, they're doing their job. They don't sin. Animals never sin. That's the beauty of animals. On their own, they're not corrupt. Unless, like Rashi says, by the marble, you know, they hang around people. And then, famous Rashi in Noyach. It's beautiful, huh? Yeah, there's a, there's a deep spirituality that vibrates through them, and not, it's just how they were created, you know. It's Marabah Masach Hashem. They're really products of the divine, and they don't corrupt it. They don't have our uh, ability to uh, corrupt themselves because they don't have the same spiritual abilities to rise in that way. So, every person has Yimeshna Seinu Bahem Shivim Shana that we work with the two souls. It's almost a dance between the two souls and an act of a relationship. And the Chiddush here is that one's lifespan, one's life course, one's uh, years of life, according to this discourse of the Balatanya, are allotted to them based on how much work they need to do with their animal soul. So this gives out, this brings out even a deeper depth in the preciousness of our work with our animal soul. It's like, don't run away from your animal, because this is exactly where your mission lay. This is exactly where your purpose lay. Or to put it simply, in simple words, maybe a little more blunt, that which you fear most is probably that which you need most. That which may be most difficult for you is probably that which you need most. In other words, the fact that your animal soul is really resisting this, this may be your very mission. So you say, oh, I thought I was over with all of this. He says, no, every day there's going to be a new Mulchama. So the more sensitive you are to your mission in life, it's not that life becomes easier. The challenge will expand to different realms, different categories. On the contrary, because you're completed one, now you could move on to the next. You know, like a Spartan race. You know, Spartan races. <laughs> they have these uh, athletic races where they really test your, uh, your athletic uh, skills. So, uh, you know, you finish one major challenge, you know, you, you, you have to swim through a lake of mud. <laughs> you have to swim through a lake of mud, right? So you're done. So what happens now? Now you go to a harder challenge. They give a much older kids. I don't know if you follow football. When you get a first down in football, you, start, you have the new 10-yard marker moves further downfield, and you have to start again with, with the new 10 yards. That's the much older kids. Right. That's finishing somewhere. Huh? Yeah. So, the, and the kavana here is not the battle and the aggravation. The kavana is the relationship to be able to confront the animal soul. And it happens on two levels. Sometimes we wage battle and we simply have to fight it, so to speak, punch it in the face and say no. And then there is a deeper process, and that is birur, ishapcha, refinement, sublimation, elevation, education, enlightenment. Just like in education. 
There's sumerana seitav. There's the discipline element where you just say no. No ifs, no buts, no whys, no whens. And then, but that's not the ultimate. The ultimate of education is not just that you always tell your children no. <laughs> yes, you need that. But the ultimate of education is to inspire the child. You want that your children should be able to inculcate the values and they should become their values, not your values. So in this sense also, there's the element where I stand guard with my nefesh abahamas, but then there's an element of refinement. I want to work with it. So that's the imation. You see the line starts, You have it? This is the deeper meaning in the Pasuk. Va'ato Yisrael. Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people. Va'ato Yisrael. Mo Hashem alekecha shayel me'imach. Or in a few places. Va'ato Yisrael. Now Yisrael. So what's the va'ato? So he says the va'ato is. Sha'ato dafke. Bizman hazeh sharab ba'urav metoiv niknas an Hashem b'shem Yisrael. Means now you have to be a Yisrael. Now in this stage there's still a battle. And therefore you must rise to the state of Yisrael. You should be able to rule over Elikim, over the Midois of your animal soul. And the anoshim over the habits of your animal soul. Batuchel, you should be able to prevail. Now is a time when you must fight and you must rule and you must win. Why? Because there is a hisarvos. There's a need for boirer because the ra and the toiva ma'urav. Everything is mixed together. And you need a struggle to refine and extricate the toiva from the ra. But there will be a time in the future when the spirit of impurity will be removed. Then you won't have to be called Yisrael. Va'ata, now you're a battler. To understand now what is the ultimate purpose of this. He said what, but why? What's the ultimate purpose of two souls coming down to battle in this world? What's the question? You can almost hear the, the outcry in this question. He says, I don't understand. In its source, the nefesh achiyun is before it descended through all of these evolutionary planes of concealment and restrictions. It was also bottled by Hashem. It was also nullified and submerged in the infinite light of God. As we're explaining that the animal soul is not inherently evil, and the main avoid is an act of extra, extermination, what we would call milchemes shmad. No, ultimately, the ultimate goal is a milchama chinuchit. It's an educational process. That's what it is, which is one of the big yisoides here that he's trying to establish. That that's what we're dealing with. And by the way, I should just add that this. Every 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 nakuda here morphs into many more details and could be discussed from many different angles. I often ask this to young people, teenagers, especially yeshiva bachim and so on and so forth. 
How do they see the ultimate function of Yiddishkeit? As the destruction of the self or the engagement of the self? In other words, what is the message that is communicated to most Bachram or girls that, let's say, go through the ultra-Orthodox system? Or whatever system, I don't know, I don't want to give names, you know. Uh, the system of, so to speak, Torah mitzvahs in, in an intense way. What is the ultimate message? The ultimate message is you trust yourself or you distrust yourself. You repress yourself or you express yourself. You deny your emotions or you celebrate your emotions. You love yourself or you hate yourself, <laughs> to put it very simply. What do you think? So many people at least are hearing the latter. At least that's what they're experiencing. Whatever is a self is not good. Whatever I'm really excited about must be bad. And ultimately, Avodah Hashem is an act of repression. And this also has to do with obedience. Obedience. Uh, uh. There was somebody, I was giving shiurim at some, some community... So there was somebody who was coming to the shiurim. And uh, he, he would come in at the end and leave early and he would like hide so the camera shouldn't get him. So I asked him once, what's, uh, you're afraid to, uh, to be caught in my presence? I mean, what's going to happen? You're on the witness protection program. What's, what's the issue? So he told me that in his yeshiva, they would throw him out if he comes to learn these texts. So I said, today, Why? What's the big deal? What are we learning about? What's what's everybody? He's a very smart kid. So he tells me that Rashiva doesn't really mind. He's a smart guy, but he's scared to lose control. So what type of control will he lose? Maybe you'll appreciate Yiddishkeit more. What's the control he's going to lose? He says the control he's going to lose is that I will be thinking on my own. He will not create for me the system of what God wants and what He doesn't want. Huh? I don't know if it's a current story. Also, I'm just telling you what somebody once told me. So this was very interesting to me. I said, so I asked him, why do you think Rashiva wants to control your mind? What to tell you what to think, what not to think? He said, for good reasons, because he thinks that that's the way, that's the real path. You have to control people's minds. So I thought, of, I thought about it, you know. In other words, there could be, huh? there could be that there is in, in certain branches of Judaism, perhaps, a certain mahalach, and that is that. Can you really trust the human soul? Can you really trust the human soul? Or the masses are masses, and they have to be harnessed. They have to be directed. Not everybody could be exposed to everything. There are certain people, maybe yes. You know, maybe certain spiritual elitists or G'dayla Yisrael. But the masses have to be told not only what to do, but also how to think. And, uh, and a person once told me that they love a certain sheet of a particular person. I say, why? Because we come in, he tells us what to do and what not to do. And it's simple. It's not confusing. Just get married. Huh? <laughs> Right? So it's a very interesting mahalach, and it comes down, I think, to a very deep concept. And that is, do we embrace the self or not? Ultimately, if you negate the self, somebody has to tell you, somebody better, superior, holier has to tell you what to do, and even what to think, and what to feel. But the derech Shemtiv was very different. Now, somebody was in my house last Shabbos, 
and uh, and she told me that uh, her siblings, even though they grew up very differently, her siblings became Hasidish. So I said, I'm sorry, you have to explain to me what that means. I don't know what that means. So she says they put on a strimal. So I said, if, could you maybe define it in terms of character, not in terms of garments? Because I, I can also, I mean, anybody could put on a strimal. I mean, I could take my cat and put a strimal on my ha- cat. I, I never knew that garments are actually represent something significant. Is there a, a, a character definition? So she said, yeah, that they stopped thinking for themselves. That's what she told me. So I was thinking, so I told my wife after, I said, you know, this is an interesting, tragic situation. The Baal Shem Tov was a revolutionary. And the Baal Shem Tov constantly in his teachings explained the idea that God's light could be found in every person and you have to find your own God. And yet, today, the very term Hasidus became associated with very, prof- at least in some places or by some people, I'm not giving a generic term for everybody, as ultimate repression and obedience in the sense of uh, you just go with the masses, you go with the herd. When his whole mission, when a major part of his mission statement was self-discovery and really discovering, you know, the God within you, the soul within you. So that's a, that's a pretty tragic, uh, I think, phenomenon, if that's true. So I'll call upon them. We, so this is a very powerful idea that... The ultimate avoider with the Nefesh Bahamas is never about repression. It's never about repression of self. Never about abnegation of self. Never about destruction of self. Yes, discipline, yes, but not destruction. But discipline is not destruction. Discipline is to help the animal soul become who it is. Sometimes you have to put a muzzle on its mouth. I want my child to be healthy. Sometimes I have to say, no, you can't eat the candy. Not because I don't believe, I believe that the child has to be an obedient robot. Because I understand that if I put poison into a person too much, although I see they just discovered that pasta is very good for you. I see they used to say pasta is the worst thing in the world. But uh, I see now a new article, uh, I don't know if the doctor agrees. You saw in the New York Times? Yep, it's a hush of an article that pasta is mamre's moededik. I don't know, I always... I was told pastors like the Malach Hamavis himself, Bechvoy De Vatsma. So, uh, you have to know what's poison, what's not. But the point is, discipline is a heksher. It's a means, it's a means for an end. So here comes the big question. If the Nefesh of Bahamas and its Shoirish is really holy, and it's bottled by Hashem, it just descended into a space where it's not aware of itself. So why did this have to happen? It's like almost a game. Or a game, you take the Nefesh Abhamas, which is really one with God, you send it on a journey where it becomes a beast and an animal, and now, the real tragedy, you take the Nefesh kiss and you have to send it into the lion's den, and a whole life, it's engaged and entangled and enmeshed with this animal soul, and not sure who it is, who it's not, doing battle and so forth. Lama, why did this, why did this all of this happen? So for this, we have to give a hagdama about the concept of this battle and the time of the battle. Hamavur b'zoya, which this is explained in Zoya. Zoya, Rakadosh says a very interesting lash. Shaita the krava, he shaita the tzloisa. The time of davening is a time of war. 
The Zoyar defines what is davening, it's a time of war. Man, the He says that the king said there's a snake, and whoever kills the snake, Chivya is a snake. I give him my daughter, I give him Brat, I give him my daughter, Lamalka, as a, as a, Brat of the Malka, give him the daughter of the king. Dotsloys, and that's davening. Davening is when one does battle against the snake. And for that, you get the daughter of the king. What does the Zoya mean? What does it mean davening is a time of Mulchama? So, mainly in a shul where everyone is screaming at each other. <laughs> so you understand davening is a time of Mulchama. Davening is a time where you're speaking to God. Of course, what he's going to explain is it's not a Mulchama with other people. <laughs> that's, that's not davening. It's talking about a Mulchama within yourself. In other words, davening is, so to speak, it's the Olympic Games of the spiritual battle. It's when the Nefesh kiss and the Nefesh Bahamas really go at each other. It's when the Divine Soul confronts its animal soul and talks with it, negotiates with it, handles with it. And according to the Balatanya, the whole Nusach HaTfila was structured by the Anshay Knesset HaGdoyla and by the Chazal and by the Goinim. And as you know, the different parts of davening were added at different stages of Jewish history until we have our long, elaborate davening that we have today. And really, from a spiritual perspective, every part of davening was designed simply as part of this battle, as part of this, let's call it conversation, or, or uh, complex conversation, that goes on between the godly soul and the animal soul during davening. So it's almost like the nefesh al-lakis is engaging its opponent, or apparent opponent, I should say, apparent opponent in a very intense process. That's what the Zoya means, Shas Sloisa, Shas Krova. And that's why, as he says elsewhere, the worst Machshava Zaris will usually come in the middle of Davani. Not only because people are bored by Davani, that's part of the problem, but it's even deeper than that. Even if you're having a successful davening, when you're having an arm wrestle with somebody, so in the beginning he may not be working very hard. But when you're about to get him down, what's going to happen? In order to gain some face, save some face, and maybe even try to win, he will muster all of his resources and resist to try to get, to try to get you down. So it's precisely your success that engenders such opposition. So the more successful a davening, in other words, the more successful the nefesh kiss is in triggering its own fire, the more it will engender the opposition of its apparent opponent who will search for every type of thought to put into your head in order to derail you. So it's not because you were unsuccessful, it's because you were successful. So the male of davening is a very serious time of a mulchama. That's why in his world, the world of tefillah was very intense, was very powerful, very intimate, extremely intimate time. It's a time when a person really, it's a very deep internal spiritual time of therapy, so to speak, of trying to understand who we are, what we are, and the various contrasting forces that exist in the, in the, exist in the human personality. The first step of davening is psuke de zimra. Psuke de zimra, meaning the verses of praise, and where the focus is that the person needs to be able to talk to the nefesh of Bahamas and help it separate itself. Between, make a distinction between its own Ra and its own Toif. We say in Pesukah de Zimra, 
the exaltedness of God is in their throats, and a double-edged sword is in their hand. So the way we read it, Bepashtus is, Lasus Nekamav Agoyim Techeches Balomim. But the Balatanya says, the Nekamav Agoyim is talking about yourself, it's all yourself. Meaning, meaning, Shtei Piyos, why does the sword have two mouths? So you say it's a double-edged sword, you know, to, 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 to uh, jab, to, to, to harm the person from two, to harm your opponent from two, uh, from two, uh, two points, two blades. He says, no. One edge is there to bring up the good, and the other edge is there to be mafredera. Just like in Boyer, there's taking out the oichel and there's throwing away the psoilus. This is Psukkadazimra. Psukkadazimra's job is to help the Nefesh of Bahamas to caress it and say, listen, you're not evil. You're a good guy. You're a cute little puppy. You're a cute little puppy. I love you, I cherish you. The only thing is, I need you to understand yourself. That not everything that you crave superficially is really who you are. We need a process of boirer. We need to select and refine your own toy from your own ra. What's your toy? Your toy is that in you which is really good and pure and beautiful. The ra is that in you which is negative and harming, or on even a more subtle level, that definition of yourself that is disconnected from God. So that, that's the cherub of two pifias. For who? So this begins a process. We, how do you do this to the Nefesh of Bahamas? And what's the connection to Psukkah de Zimra? Where does, where does Psukkah de Zimra come in with elevating the Nefesh of Bahamas? The cherub, there's no connection between them. So he's going to explain the process of how the different stages of davening, there's Psukkah de Zimra, there's Birchus Krishna, there's Krishna, there's Shemina Esra, the different stages of davening are all stages in the inner confrontation between the two souls of man. So Psukkah de Zimra focuses, Lamashal, on nature. Much of Psukkah de Zimra, most of it, focuses really on a study of nature, right? Take the Halalukas. We speak about, in one of the Halalukas, Shemesh, V'yareach, Eish, Varot, Shelek, Kiter, Harim, Gvoyes, Eitzpri, Chaya, Behemo, Remes, Ritzipur, Konof. It's a meditation on natural phenomena of the universe, much of Sukkot Zimra. It's a meditation on time, on space, on creatures, on nature, on heaven and earth. And as we're going to see, this is a conversation with the Nefesh Bahamas to be able to help it understand that the whole world that we observe, even the nature that we observe, is really divine energy. It's really Halaluka, Halaluas Hashem and Hashemayim. What this is doing is helping the animal soul, almost explaining to it, explaining to it that it's not detached, explaining to it that it's not alienated. And this is what he's going to go on to explain, how the various parts of davening are there to be able to help the two souls make a certain level of peace during davening, which then has its impact throughout the whole day. Which after this, we can then come to understand better what was the purpose of sending down the neshama for this, uh, for this mission. The primary time. We explored this, this maimah, this discourse of the Alter Rebbe, of the Rav, of the Balatanya, in Parshish Kiseitse. Explores in some detail the fact that every human being, every Jew particularly, doesn't uh, operate on one operating system, but actually possesses two operating systems. In other words, operates on two levels of consciousness. 
And these are known as the two souls. In other words, the story of life is a tale of two souls in one city. And that is the fact that we operate on two levels of consciousness. One is divine, transcendental. It's a piece of Hashem. It's a fragment of God. And therefore, it sees really the world from a divine perspective. And its ambition in life, its goal in life is intimacy with its source, oneness with its source. And uh, it seeks transcendence. It seeks to... uh, to go out of the confinement of a separated autonomous mm-hmm. ego mm-hmm. and be one with the core of all reality. But there's another soul which is called the beastly consciousness or an animal consciousness, the Nefesh of Bahamas, which is focuses on self-preservation and self-gratification. And essentially it's not evil. In fact, essentially it says it comes from a very, very lofty and sublime place. It just morphs into a state of consciousness where it feels completely self-contained and separated from its source, and therefore it has to make decisions for survival, not feeling itself as part of Hashem. So its psychological and spiritual and mental makeup is one that it can experiences itself detached and severed from its divine source. And like every animal, if it's not trained, if it's not disciplined, if it's not refined, if it's not uh, educated, if it's not enlightened, from a cute little, uh, you know, from a cute little... Uh, animal, puppy, it can turn into a uh, scary or very aggressive, uninhibited uh, monster. And uh, this is what happens to a person's animal soul. The animal soul, if it's not nurtured, if it's not protected, if it's not preserved, if it's not trained, educated, enlightened, from an animal it could become a, uh, it could, instead of being domesticated, it could be, become undomesticated. And uh, it could become extremely powerfully aggressive and sometimes destructive. And the journey of life, he says, this journey of life suggested is the partnership between these two souls. It's the marriage between the souls. And the objective of creating shalom bayis, harmony between them, is a goal in life. And he says every person is given the amount of years that they really need in order to work through their animal soul. And every day, something else comes up in this struggle. As he puts it, every day there's a malchama chadasha. And the main time that this negotiation or peace is supposed to happen is during the time of davening. Davening was designated as a time when a person works out his issues or her issues with their two souls, the godly soul and the animal soul. Now the klal here is that menuchas uh, serenity in life, can only happen when the animal soul ultimately aligns with the divine soul because the divine soul is never going to become an animal just by nature. A divine, uh, the prince cannot become a beast. It's just, it's contrary to its very, its very essence, it's very self. So the divine soul is never going to become an animal. If you had the choice of turning your divine soul into an animal, so then theoretically there would have been a possibility to have serenity and wholesomeness in life if you just live like a beast. Uncontrolled, unrefined, undisciplined, uh, unchallenged. It would work theoretically because you would have no tension. But because there is always a godly soul that will always remain divine, so therefore when one ultimately doesn't align their animal soul with the divine, there is a void that they will not get rid of. And this is a key idea in his teachings, that uh, this void is a very, very powerful, it's a very real, authentic void. Because a human being has to know who he or she is if they want to understand the path to menuchas anafish, to serenity and wholesomeness. So wholesomeness, although we never completely get rid of the battle in life, but we could still be wholesome within our battle because if you know who you are and what you're supposed to do, 
and what your mission is, and where your struggle is coming from. So then you have peace in your peacelessness. Is there such a word, or I just made up a word? Huh? Okay, Webster will include it. Peace in your peacelessness. That's really the objective. To be able to find harmony within the fragmentation. It's not like one gets rid of the battle. Because in most people's cases, the Nefesh Bahamas is not completely transformed ever. There are unique souls. David HaMelech says, V'libi chalol b'kirbi, right in Tehillim. So Chazal say, E'en lo yetzahara, hargoi b'taynis. The Yerushalmi says in Brachas, U'matzah says, L'vavoy nema l'fanecha, L'vavoy about Avram Avinu. What's You don't use the Nefesh Abamas? No, the Nefesh, uh, the kids. Well, even if you don't use it, you may not use it, but it's still going to be present. And the question, how it's going to express itself, it may express itself in addiction. Sometimes you'll have a person who's an addict, and the only reason they're addicted is because they have a Nefesh Alakis. I once heard from Dr. Tversky at a conference for uh, addiction. He said that in Boca Raton, uh, some time ago, so he got up and he said that... Uh, He's found from 50 years of experience or 60 years of experience, a long time, that it's usually the most sensitive spiritually people that go into addiction to become addicts because their pain is more acute. And the reason their pain is more acute is because they're more sensitive. So what other people just dismiss and gloss over and don't notice, they take in very deeply. And when you're, you're more sensitive and you're more spiritual, so your spiritual needs are much higher and your sensitivities are much deeper. And when they're not met, your sense of pain and emptiness is far more acute. You know what acute means? Asach sharfer, asach tifer. And therefore, it may play itself out in much more destructive behavior to dull it. The more pain I have, the more I have to dull it. And every day I have to up my game in order to feel some sense of serenity. So the paradox is, as he often says, the Baltanya that the higher you are, the often the lower you fall. Because when the highest part of the wall falls, right, the, the higher the rock is, the further it's going to fall. The higher part of the tree falls much further. Pashtun Gashmis. But spiritually, it's also that way. So sometimes the deeper the Nefesh Alakis, the deeper the void when one is not living up to that state of who he is. I cannot ultimately deny who I am. I could run from it, I can hide from it, I can repress it, I can try to kill it through drugs, alcohol, gambling, websites, whatever, all the other things out there in the world or in here in our hearts, but I can't ultimately get rid of it. I can't. I can't destroy it. It's not something that's destructible, and it's ultimately my essence. But on the other hand, since the animal is not essentially essentially ungodly, the animal also comes from Hashem. It just went through a whole process, so therefore peace of mind ultimately is only possible by aligning the, the, the animal with the godly, not by aligning the godly with the animal, because the godly is never going to become an animal. It's not going to become a beast. But the Nefesh Bahamas will ultimately join the godly soul, sometimes begrudgingly, and sometimes willingly, and sometimes enthusiastically. That depends where you're spa- which space you're in. Sometimes it's begrudgingly. Right, we say in the morning, every morning in in the Hiratzin, right before, before uh, in the middle of Birchas Hashachar, what's v'chayfes yitzreino? From the Lashon, kayfe, kayfe, like in Rambam, kayfe noisayatriyamiroitzani. Sometimes it's begrudgingly. Sometimes you have to call the puppy and say, eh, 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 and it comes, but it comes, but you're not going to go into the garbage can ever. 
Why not? It just doesn't work that way, because you're not going to the garbage can. But the dog will leave the garbage. In the beginning, he'll resist it, but ultimately he's happy to go with the master. When the animal soul follows the divine soul, it never regrets it, because it's being true ultimately to itself also. When the godly soul follows the animal soul, not only is it not being true to itself, it's not even being true to the animal soul. It's abusing the animal soul, because the animal soul, as he's going to say soon, is, going to, is craving sublimation. It's the, that's the whole reason this should have happened. It's craving sublimation. So when I follow my animal soul, I'm not just doing injustice to me, that's besides the point. I'm also ultimately doing injustice to the animal soul, which was one of the great ideas that uh, the Balatanya always brought out, that for compassion for the animal soul, you have to have compassion for the animal soul, not only for the godly soul. And animals that have the nefesh famines, but don't have the nefesh Right. So they have no craving for they're happy with themselves. Yes. So what, what keeps some animals from becoming beasts, Yitzhahara type beasts, destructive, and some that will... Well, that's the Machloikas of Abakama, the end of Abakama, the first panic. What's Bnei Tarbus okay. and what's not Bnei Tarbus, right? You know, you remember the Mishnah, the last Mishnah of Abakama where it's Daf Tesvav, Daf Yudalad, Hazeev, Hadoiv, Hanochash, Varyeh, Eina Bnei Tarbus. Every few years you hear in the news, you know, how in the zoo... The tiger was taka trained, and the lion was trained, and the gorilla was trained, but uh, but at some point uh, they're <laughs> they're untrained, huh? It ate the trainer. It ate the trainer. It's very sad. That's even a show. Yeah, yeah. Stam That's even a show. But then there's animals that al chatchila not bnei tiger. So that really has with the genes that you know that that they have been uh, created with, you know, what, what they're capable of. And of course, even in a person himself or herself, you can't compare one animal soul to another animal soul. You can't compare Esav's nefesh Bahamas to Yaakov's nefesh Bahamas. Yaakov was Ishtam Yoshev Aholim, and Esav was Yedei Etzayed Ish Sada, and everyone has their own journey. That's why he says everybody has their lifespan, because no two animal souls are the same. Everyone has a whole different, different mahalach. It's like almost designed for you. You know, Hashem designs, He makes up that shidduch, you know, all zivugim amin Hashemayim. The first zivug is your nefesh alikis and your nefesh abahamas. But the more you speak to your nefesh abahamas, the more you, um, get, you get to know yourself and you can create a real plan for yourself. Because you really have to know it. You have to know You have to know its ins and its outs. And it also teaches you a few things because it has a lot of potential. He's going to say also something very interesting, and that is animals are more powerful than people. Brute power exists in animals, which is what the divine soul gains from a relationship with the animal soul. So it is really a give and take as well, but let's not jump ahead of ourselves. The main time in, in the world of in the world of Hasidus, the world of Nister and generally, I should say really, uh, the, the whole world of Yiddishkeit, no difference, Nigla or Nister, Tfilo was the main time when a person focuses on his relationship with Hashem. But it's also the main time when he focuses on his relationship with Hashem in terms of his two souls. So tefillah is really designated as a time where the animal soul and the divine soul enter into a dialogue. Not a monologue, but a dialogue. And what I say a dialogue is, a monologue means, you know, I talk and you listen or you fall asleep, um, uh, usually. A dialogue is, there's actually a conversation, so that the animal soul is listening to the divine soul, and the divine soul is, is trying to talk and communicate and persuade and elevate and help the animal soul so that during the rest of the day it should be able to live a more focused and wholesome life.
So that is the, the key of, I mean, I guess a summation with some elaboration of some of the issues that we, we have been exploring. And now he gets to the details of what davening is. So Mtsukah de Zimra, which is a major part of this, is Remimus Kel Begreinam, V'cherif Pifiyas Biyadam, Pifiyas, it says, the Gemara says in Brachas, I think it's Cherif Shal Shtepiyas, which he says the Shtepiyas represents not to stab him in two ways, but one edge of the sword is there to elevate the toiv, and one is to separate the ra. In other words, the Nefesh Bahamas needs help doing boirer, to be able to separate its own psoilus from its own oichel, its own filth, its own toxicity from its own goodness. And that, as you know, is a very big avayda, to know what to embrace, what to reject, what belongs to you, what doesn't belong to you, what you want to run with, and what you want to say goodbye to. That's the cherev shal shteipiyas. V'huk shem Hashem. A major part of davening Pesukah de Zimri is a person should meditate. His boinenus comes from the word bina, right? Like we say, v'sein belibenu bina lahavin. The word his boinenus, v'hem yevoinenehu, from the word bina. His boinenus is contemplation or meditation. Or if you wish, it's a state, what we call today mindfulness. But it's mindfulness that takes time. His boinenus is to go into a state of mindfulness, of awareness. For this you need silence. What I mean by silence is not necessarily there shouldn't be any other person 60 miles range. That sometimes helps too. But his bindingness also means silence, the sense of silence from yourself, that you should really be able to enter into a space which is very hard for people. It's extremely hard for people to think about something for more than a few seconds. Thank God today we have iPhones, so even if you're not interested in thinking, somebody will text you. So there's always a distraction. You know that some people, they cannot stay still for a few minutes they right away have something, and they look at it, and that's always a distraction. But distractions are the opposite of his bindingness. His bindingness means that you actually focus on something. And it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing to focus on something. Actually tune into something. That's called his bindingness. Fuhukshim is one of the most frequent words used here. Fuhukshim is bindin ha'adam bigdulas Hashem. When a person contemplates gdulas Hashem, now gdulas Hashem in the terminology of the Balatanya, usually people will translate it as the greatness of God. I think a better translation would be the truth of God, or the infinity of God. Gedula in the terms of Gadol Hashem, Gadol doesn't mean he's big, he's powerful, he's muscular, he's a, he's a, you know, a heavyweight, and he's a, a black belt. Gadol means, Gadol means actually, the greatness means the infinity, the all-pervading reality of God. From then with Hashem means he contemplates the all-pervading reality of God. All-pervading means that it's, it's infinite, it's, its presence fills everything. He's going to explain right away. You'll see why I'm translating it that Eminence. way. Imminence. Imminence, right. Imminence, yeah. Imminence, very good. That he gives life to all, which we say in Pesukah de Zimra. Va'ata mechayes kulam. And by now you know it's a Pasuk in. Nechemia. And he gives existence to everything. Mechayes kulam and mahaves kulam. And there's a difference between mechayes and mahaves, and it's a very significant difference. Mahava comes from the word hoiva, like havaya, hoya, baruch sha'amar v'hoya ha'olam. Meaning, it brings something into existence. It becomes, it becomes something. That's called mahava, from the word hishavus, or hoiva, lashon hoiva. When we say dibur hakasav b'hoiva, avar hoiva asad, hoiva means that which is, isness. Mahava means God makes everything is. Chiyus, mechaya, is not just its isness, its particular life. In other words, it's individual function, it's individual purpose, it's individual chemistry and design. The godly and this itself has a lot to it. We don't say that God created all the worlds. We say, that's even deeper. 
Creation means that there's a common denominator between everything, and that is God created everything. The Atamachayas Kula means that the divine energy constitutes the individual identity of everything. In other words, a relationship with God means ultimate individuality, and that's important, because there's a question in philosophy, and generally in, in Hashkafa, I think it's still raging today in the Jewish world, consciously or unconsciously, for relationship to God ultimately means repression of individuality, or not. So we, you know, we discussed this numerous times. In the ultimate calling, is it about repression of individuality? Sometimes there is a feeling that for certain people, avodas Hashem means the negation of self. Some something of themselves gets lost in the process. Sometimes one feels that in talking to certain people, they felt maybe unconsciously they didn't know this, they didn't process it, that they had to cut off a little part of themselves, maybe emotions, or talents, or expression, or personality in order to be an Er Lechayit. Or in psychological terms, maybe to become a little lame, or meek, or hunchback. I mean hunchback, psychologically speaking, in order to serve God. Because if I'm hunchback, ultimately it means I'm bottle, I'm nichna. Rashi says, the Mishnah says, So Rashi says, So what does hachna mean? In Brachas, the beginning of the first fourth parak. What does subservience mean? Subservience means literally, you know, subservience, we know the physical gesture of subservience, right? You know how the Japanese demonstrate subservience, hachna. So we don't do it like the Japanese exactly, but hachna uh, would mean, you know, like a little part, you become a subservient person in essence. That's a question. That would be if Hashem is Mahava the world. But if he's Mechaya the world, then it's the other way around. Because if he's Mahava the world, then it means that a connection to God means you connect to the source of creation. But if Hashem is Mechaya the world, then you connect to God by actually going into yourself in a deeper way. By finding your unique individuality, because that is also divine. And that's really the two pchinas of Soivav and Mamale. Mahava and Mechaya. I'm just putting it in context. You should understand he's not repeating himself when he says here, Mechaya is kulam or Mahava is kulam. It's not stama redundancy. It's a very significant, very significant dual reality that Hashem is the common denominator of everything, which transcends individual differences. Shava umash vakatan vagadal. But then there's also Va'ata Mechaya is kulam. Mechaya means it's my chiyas, and my chiyas is not your chiyas. And the chiyus of the worm is not the chiyus of the caterpillar. And the chiyus of the caterpillar is not the chiyus of the frog or of the turtle. Or of the drop of rain or flake of snow or blade of grass or little little pebble. Everything has its individual, scientifically, its chemistry, what it's made up of, its unique molecular structure as we would call it or atomic structure, everything, whether it's the mineral world, or the botanic world, or the animal kingdom, or of course the human race, or the heavenly planets, the galaxies, everything has its chemistry, its physical chemistry. But the physical chemistry is a result of the spiritual chemistry. And the spiritual chemistry is basically the unique Dvar Hashem, not one Maimer. He could have created the world with one Maimer. So the Balatani explains, what's the question? What's the question? But Maimer Echad Yachalibaris would mean that the world should experience itself as one entity if it would have been a Maimer Echad. There would be no diversity. What do we mean there would be? There would be diversity, but diversity wouldn't be significant. You know why? Because it wouldn't be divine. It would be superficial. In fact, throughout history, one of the most fascinating um, and really ultimately sad attempts have been to create 
a socialist sense of unity in mankind. No differences between people, even in terms of ownership. Take socialism, communism. Now, these were very idealistic attempts. You had in a, here, here in America, you know, part of the, the, of, you know, the hippie movement. Still today, you have that element of obliterating, you know, imagine there's no boundaries, no borders, no limitations, nothing, no heaven, no nations, no cultures. There's something very idealistic about it. It speaks to young people. The reason it speaks to young people is, so it's easy to dismiss and say it's, it speaks to young people because there's a truth to it. The truth is, it's the truth of Koyrach. Koyrach pikeach haya. Koyrach says everything comes from one source. So by obliterating diversity, we actually can reach the source of everything. Madua tisnasu al The problem is, and this was the Der HaFlogger's mistake, it was the first mistake, that you cannot impose superficial unity on a diversity that is inherent to the fabric of creation. Diversity is also divine. Diversity is not clipped. Diversity is divine. Diversity doesn't only come because God is concealed. Diversity also comes because God is revealed. Because you give the individual content to every nivra. So if I am not true to my content, I'm not true to my divinity. So my relationship with Hashem demands an individual relationship with myself. But because I also know I don't become an extreme narcissist capitalist. Narcissistic capitalist, which is the other extreme. Socialism was a response to capitalism, which is all about greed. Me, 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 me. Only individuality. You take care of me, I take care of me, you take care of you. Absolutely no crossover. Cross-pollination is also essential to creation. Ultimately, there's one world, there's a cohesive world, there's one achtos. That's the combination. That's why va'ata mahaves kulam, va'ata mechayes kulam are two key features in the mamlach of Yiddishkeit. We're completely one, and we're also very diverse. And they're both very true. And we can ultimately discover our oneness through our diversity. And our oneness also leads us to diversity. It works both ways. Diversity has arrows to oneness, and oneness has arrows to diversity. When you understand the origin of oneness and diversity. And that's why Lubavitch Rebbe once shared a story that his father-in-law, the Rebbe Rayatz, was the sixth Chabad Rebbe, was on a train in the 1920s. In those days, the isms were very powerful in the world. Young men and women would sit in cafes and salons and in, in Berlin and in Paris and in Russia, and instead of discussing iPhone 6, iPhone 7, they would discuss, or they would discuss uh, what's the future of, uh, of civilization. Everyone had an ism. There was a lot of idealism. There were a lot of isms that especially Jewish youth were attracted to. The biggest was socialism and communism, of course, secular Zionism, and many other isms. You had the Buddhist, and you had the Yiddishist, and you had the Zionist, and you had, of course, capitalism, and many other isms. Judaism was not very popular at the time. It was actually in a very serious decline in the 1920s and 1930s. Very serious decline, more than even people imagine today. So uh, he was on a train, and, uh, and there was a big debate. There was a big, big debate among Jews, a classic debate. There's two major shittas at the time, Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin and all those guys. They wanted socialism to rule the world. That was the time. There was a few years after the Bolshevik Communist Revolution in 1917, which basically plunged the whole Soviet Union into a uh, living hell for, for, for close to 70 years under Stalin's dictatorship. 
because uh, everybody is equal in socialism, but some people are more equal than others, kiyadua. So uh, they were discussing which shit in politics is the most consistent with Torah. So one said that Torah is obviously all about socialism. Because constantly in Torah you have Al-Tifrish, Menat Sibur, Chshani Laatzmi Mani, Tzdoke, Peye, Leket, Shikha, Maiser Sheni, Maiser Oni, Aliyah Regel, Koyanim, Leviyim, Minyonim, it's all Tzibur, everything is community in, in, in Judaism. You know, there's Tzibur. We had yesterday a Tainus Tzibur, there's Tfilah B'Tzibur, everything is, you know, the Oni, the Ger, the Yosem, the Amonah, B'Kechoylem, Chnosis Kala, Tamchoy, and these are obligatory. A Jew doesn't want to give stuff, so you come into his house and you take a lateral. There's no, there's no such a thing you live for yourself. And others were saying, it's not true. Take a look, Cheshit Mishpat, Kinyin, 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 Semayinim, Meshich, Hagbach, it's all mine. There's, 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 there's property, there's domain, there's ownership. The whole Cheshit Mishpat is based on ownership, individual ownership. Baba Kama, Baba Metziah, this is Shut from Shrat Mechitz, it's all about boundaries. And So they're arguing, this one is saying, no, Torah is socialist, and this one is saying, Torah is capitalist, and so forth. So they went over to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rayats, and they asked him what his opinion was. So he said as follows. He said a beautiful answer. He said, Ain toif beloi rave, ain beloi toif. It says in Sifri Kabbalah, there's no good without evil. In this world, there's no evil without good. Every shit that is a human invention has in it toif and ra. It has gems of brilliance, beauty, idealism, and morality. But every person also has frailties and some other stuff in their psyche that are not always perfect, and they're also mixed into the shitta. So he says, any sh- most shittas in life, most political philosophies of how countries should run, are usually a mixture. They have toiv in them, and they have ra, some elements that are beautiful, and tremendous, and some that are not. He said as follows, Istakel bayraisa baral, but the Zoyar says that the Torah is the blueprint of the world. The nekudas hatoiv that exists in every shitta ultimately comes from Torah. The nekudas hatoiv that exists in every shita comes from Torah. So he says, in socialism you'll find very powerful nekudas of toiv. And those nekudas of toiv come from Torah. In capitalism you'll find nekudas of toiv. You'll also find nekudas of ra. And those nekudas of toiv come from Torah. Torah is the conglomerate of the positive in each one of these shittas. That's why in Torah it's a very delicate balance. Are we one or are we not one? It's not so simple. 10% I have to give it stuck. 90% I don't have to give it stuck. Why not? This guy's a multimillionaire, right? Give! 80% doesn't work that way. He has to. It's a good thing. He should give. He should give more tzedakah. No question. Because Torah is a very delicate balance between the interplay of the individual versus the community. And Hillel says it, right? If I am not for myself, who will be here for me? But But if I'm only for myself, then what am I? <laughs> so if I'm not here for myself, who will be here for me? So I have to be here for myself. The question is, what is myself? If myself is only myself, then money, then what is it? So that's the two expressions. There's atamahave eskulam and atamachaya eskulam. So your path to Hashem works through two ways. One is transcendence of self, and one is actualization of self, realization of self. And that is critical for the work that the godly soul does with the animal soul. Because with the animal soul itself, there's going to be these two elements. One is allowing it to transcend itself, and one is allowing it to go deeper into itself. And in life, sometimes, 
the advice to a person is forget about yourself and sometimes the advice is you have to go a little deeper into yourself what's the proper advice there's no no forget about yourself or go deeper into yourself so you have to be able to look beyond yourself which is not repression it's just the ability to be able to look beyond yourself not because you repress it because you put it in context you put it in context that's what you do and sometimes you actually have to go much deeper into yourself So who? Let's see this line again. When a person meditates on the imminence of Hashem, how he gives life to all, and he gives existence to all. So every single reality existing is existing from him and gets energy from him, vitality from him. Like we say in davening, you give chius, your mechaya, everything. And one realizes that everything is everything is, so to speak, part of him or in him. It's, it's nullified by him and in him. It's all an expression of his, of his energy. And all in his presence doesn't have a separate and independent significance an independent reality outside of him, kula, all, kameh, in his presence, keloi chashiv, it does not have a separate significance or identity outside of him, kameh shakasa, like we say in Pesukah de Zimra from the Pasuk in Divri Hayamim, lecha Hashem hagdula v'hagvura v'atiferes v'anetzach v'ahoyt, to you God is gdula v'gvura, so what does it mean? It means, shakal, on a deeper level, it means shakal amidus al-yoynus, p'teilim etzlo yizbarech, that even the Midas Elyon is the higher Midas, Hashem's Midas, like Gdullah, Gvura, Teferis, Netzach, Abateh, we say, Lecha Hashem, they are to you, to you doesn't only mean you possess them, you have them, it means that they are completely, so to speak, submerged, submerged in you, like it says in Tikkun Ezoyah, the Lav Mikol Midas Elain Klal, he does not consist of any of these Midas, the Midois don't capture him, the Midois don't define him, although he has all these Midas, but Lecha, they're bottled to him, and he transcends them, all the Midois, myriads of levels, and really Ein Misper without a number, there's no number to explain how transcendent from the Midas is, even the Malachim, declare as we say in Davening, Kadosh, Chuli, Kadosh, they say three times, Kadosh, 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 what does Kadosh mean? Pirish. Kedusha is mufrush umuvdal. Rashi says, Kedushim to you, prushim to you. The word Kedusha means aloof, segregated. When you say something is holy, it means it's designated to be unique, holy. So when you say Kaddish, mufrush, segregated, separated, umuvdal, distinct. Lamai, lamai, la, completely beyond, transcendent. Migeder, memale, v'sayv of kalalmin, from any realm that we may call memale, and even sayv of kalalmin. Which are basically the, the which basically represents the divine energy that fills the worlds, and even the divine energy that transcends the individuality of every particular item. And yet he transcends both mamale and soiviv. That's kadosh. Kamaim the Gemara says at the end of Masechta Megillah, Megillah the Flamed Aleph, Mamish the end of the Masechta. Vamakum sham In the space where you find his greatness, that's where you, you find you find his humility. 
So what is the what is the Gemara saying? The Gemara says that Kol Makam Generally in Tanakh, wherever you'll find a pasuk that extols Hashem's greatness, right there in the same pasuk or afterwards, the pasuk will also explain His humility. So for example, we'll say in Yeshaya, Morim veKadosh. Eshkoin es dako shvaruach. He's marim, he's exalted, kadosh is holy, and he dwells with the one who's broken and humble. And the Gemara goes through various psukim that the Tanakh always contrasts it. In a place where you find his gedula, in the very same context, you'll always find also his anava, his humility. That's literal pshat of the Gemara. Here in Lakuta Torah, the Balatanya gives a twist, not just a, a, a fascinating spin, to what does Gemara mean? It's not in the same space where you find his greatness, you also find humility. It would be like saying about a person, he's such a great man, and yet he's so accessible. He's so humble, he's so normal, he's so human, which is a compliment, because sometimes, you know, people who are big, or at least they think they're big, so they act that way. So when you say, He's so big, and nonetheless... He is humble. What the Balatanya is going to explain now is a whole deeper word in this Maimar Chazal. The Mokim Shatamaitzik, the means it's really the same thing. In the space where you find this godless, that's where you find this another meaning. What we call Gedula, from another perspective, is actually the opposite. It's actually humbling yourself. What for one, from one person's vantage point is an expression of tremendous greatness, from another vantage point is actually nothing but humbling, as he's going to explain. This means, even though we say in Ashrei, and his Gdula has Ein Cheker. What does Ligdulase Ein Cheker mean? So this, this, this Pasuk is an interesting Pasuk in Ashrei. Like all the psuk, Godul Hashem We say it three times a day, maybe four times a day. So something depends how many times you say Asher, but at least three times a day, right? Twice in Shacharis and once by Mincha. The Gemara says, So when you say Asher, you say Godul Hashem Hashem is great and He's praised exceedingly. And then you say Veligdulase Ein Cheker. Is this a little contradiction? No. He's very praised. And by the way, to his greatness, there's no research, there's no inquiry, there's no investigation. So the Balatanya asks elsewhere, he says, you're contradicting yourself. First, you, you make a qualification. You say, Oh, by the way, there's nothing to talk about. So when you start saying, So you'll say, well, that's what you're saying. You're saying, And what do I mean? I mean, but the MS says that it's actually talking about two components. There's God Hashem One is referring to Mamala Kalam and one is referring to Saiv of Kalam. God Hashem means God is very great and He's very praised. That relates to the God that I know. How do I know Him? I know Him from knowing me. By knowing you, you also know Hashem. Like the Pasik says in Tehillim, Ani Yadati, we say it Shabbos morning, Ani Yadati ki Gadl Hashem vadeinenu mikalalukim. I know that Hashem is great, and our Master greater than all the gods. So most people think the focus of the Pasuk is Hashem, which is true. But the Pasuk is also saying Hashem. I know. And the way I know, nobody knows it. Because everyone knows something about Hashem that nobody else in the world knows. Why? Because nobody knows you like you know you. 
There's a place in everybody, in every person where you're alone. We say in Parshas Vayishlach, it was the middle of the night, There's a place in the world, a place in existence where everybody is alone. That's how the Degel Machene Ephraim, the grandson of the Balsham Tov, explains the Pasuk in Vayishlach. There's a place where you're alone. You may be surrounded by a spouse, Yaakov, in Yaakov's case, four spouses, so he certainly wasn't lonely. And he had many children, and he had a great entourage. But loneliness is an inherent, an inherent quality. Loneliness, not in a negative sense necessarily, as in the lonely man of faith, but also loneliness in the sense of, uh, there's the Pasuk, the Medrash says on that Pasuk, Hadahu Diksiv in Nisgav, Shmoy Levadai Bayoy Mahu. What's the connection to Vayivasa Yaakov Levadai to Nizgav Shmoy Levadai Bayoy Mahu? That's the song. He put the two together, right? Who is that? Shlaimala? Uh, he put it together? So that's interesting. He put together the Pasuk with the Medrash. Okay. So what's the shaykhis? L'chayda here, it's Yaakov's vulnerability. He's alone, so that's why he gets attacked by a gangster in the middle of the night, because nobody's there to protect him. And here he's saying, Viniska of Hashem Levadeh Bayamahu, he's alone, because like Enoid Mulvadeh. So the Degamach and Ephraim brings out that real Avaidus Hashem, you have to recognize that you're alone. In other words, there's certain aspects of life that you can only tackle alone. You can get advice should get advice and you can have company and you can have friendship and mentorship but there's ultimately a place where you stand face to face with yourself and it's not it's not because you're anti-social because people don't have your back even if people do have your back that's also often true that people don't have your back somebody once said just because I'm paranoid it doesn't mean the whole world is not against me but um, the point is that in, in, in a powerful way there's something that I have to make, it's something I have to make my own decision. Hashem is alone in the world, and sometimes you have to look at yourself that you're alone in the world. And therefore the decisions you make are faithful, the responsibility you carry is unique. Because imagine if you were left alone to carry, to carry the world. Now, you can get neurotic, and Jews sometimes get neurotic about this. I think I heard once from Dr. Tversky that when he started off as a psychiatrist, he was in a hospital once, and there was this man who was mentally challenged, and he stood all day with his uh, hands up, and they could get, they could do nothing to get him to put his hands down. It was it was a disaster, and everything they tried didn't work. And he was a young, I think he was a resident or so. And he said he went over and he whispered something to the man, and the person put his hands down, and they wanted to know what he said. And he said he went over to him, and he said. Uh, I will hold up the world now. You could put your hands down. I will do it. And he put his hands down. So basically in his mind, you know, he was holding up the world and there was no negotiating about that. So you have to be careful with these things because, uh, you know, like everything, they could be misconstrued sometimes to points of extremities, extremes. But the point is there's a levade, there's a niyadati gadol Hashem. There's a place where a person is alone. Alone means really, really alone. Nobody, nobody hops that. It's like an etzem. It's a place of essence. Existentialism. Yeah, existentialism. Yeah. So you have existentialism again in a very, uh, you could get in a very depressing way, you know. But the Degemach and Ephraim brings it out in a very uplifting way, in terms of responsibility, in terms of empowerment, in terms of empowerment. 
It's like Hashem himself. So on that level, you could say, I know how God is great because I know me. And there's something about God that gets conveyed only through you, through nobody else. So there's something about truth that every person knows that no other person knows. There's no person in the world that cannot share a novel truth to the world, a novel truth in the world. There's a, to, to put it in, in, in musical terms, everyone contributes a distinctive verse or note in the cosmic symphony. And your note is indispensable, and nobody could play that note because it's my individual note. Even if I want to, I can't play your note. I don't have the capacity. I have my brain, my cell, my soul. Aniyadati God Hashem. There's something about Hashem, and since everything is Hashem, this really means that there's something of God that only you express in the world. Nobody else could. Nobody in the past, not because they're greater or smaller, not because you're more talented or less talented, not because you're smarter or dumber. It's because it's your distinct note in the world. This is so important for students and children and youngsters, teenagers especially, <coughs> to hear boys and girls. That, you know, the, the, this whole thing with competitiveness. Competitiveness is good to a certain degree when it's there to inspire you to reach your greatness. It's horrible when it, when it uh, competes with the very nature of people having an identity and their note to play. And in that level, there's no race. There's no race. I could try for a hundred years from today till tomorrow. I cannot be you and you cannot be me. And, and you shouldn't want to. There's a light that you express in the world that I cannot express. And there's a light that I express that you can't express. And when you express your light, I should be happy because that allows me to express my light easier. So it's the other way around which was the difference between competitiveness from the Greek perspective and competitiveness from a Jewish perspective. It's different. And there's Netzach and Hoyd. Netzach is competitive from a Greek perspective. The Arizal says that Netzach and Hoyd is Hanukkah and Purim. Hanukkah is Netzach and Hoyd is Purim. Because Hanukkah is basically the battle against the Greeks and this, the Greeks were the ones who invented you know, the Olympics and uh, a tremendous competitive culture. Now competition does, uh, brings out good stuff in people. You know, the Olympic Games, which... Uh, the world is, will soon be consumed right after the Democratic Convention. And, uh, and all these times, generally sports, you know, it brings out competition is, is powerful. Kinasoy from Tarbechachma. But this competition, Greek, Greek style, competition, Jewish style. Okay, so it's a sugi bifneatma, bringing out that there's something, Godel Hashem, that's your Godel Hashem. I know something about reality. Why do I know it? Because it's, it's me, it's, it's my reality. It's something that you know nobody else. It's like a secret. In, in a good way, a secret. Then there's Ligdolase and Cheke. Ligdolase and Cheke means there's a Gdula that I can't begin to discuss. Because that's like Saiv of Kalam. Comes the Gemara and says, a Gavaldik of art. Even though his Gadlus has no Cheke. In other words, it's, it's tremendous when we speak about his Gadlus. It's ain't cheik. I can't investigate it. Al calls that nonetheless, with all of this, he is greater than being a gadol. You ever knew that there's something greater than being a gadol? He's greater than gadlus. He's greater than his gadula. He's greater than being called great. So what we call gadula is actually humiliation. It's actually a humbling 
humbling, not humiliation, humbling. It's an anova. It's an act of self, self-suspension. It's an act of anova and shiflus. That's the pshatim emar. But makim shatim moitzig dulasi is not where you find greatness, you also find humility. That's a popi pshat. Really great people are also humble. They're not arrogant. Yeah. What he's saying is deeper. That which we call gedula, that space that we find, and we say, oh, that's a gedula. You should know what it really is. It's really his anava. What's the meaning of this? The Gemara says in Masech the Brachas, Hagdula Zumay Seberashis. Where it goes through the Opsal Chasham, Hagdula, Agvura, Teferis. Right? Hagdula Zumay Seberashis, Teferis, Zamat, and Teira. Binyan Yerushalayim, Hanetzach, Zabinyan Yerushalayim, the Gemara goes through the Pasuk. Hagdula is my sebedeshes. God lo Hashem, am hulam oedli lo And on this we say, ain't cheker. Whatever we know about my sebedeshes doesn't scratch the surface of my sebedeshes. After thousands of years, we know that we still don't understand the secret of one atom. We don't understand what's contained in one cell. In one cell we don't understand. And in a body that's close to a hundred trillion cells. And the word was trillion. And we, we barely understand what's in one cell. In one atom, we, we barely understand. So it's like the loss and cheker. This is my seberatious. When you speak about creation, you speak about gedulas Hashem, what you're calling gedula on one level, on another level, from another vantage point, is actually the ultimate anova. Because here's the question. Usually, and now think about this question. Does creation express the Reboi Neshulayla? Does creation express Hashem? The instinctive answer should be, of course. How does an artist express himself? Look at his painting. How does an architect express himself? Look at his mansion. How does a novelist express himself? Read his novel. How does a composer express himself? Listen to his symphony. How does a contractor express himself? Look at his building. Every talent, every art, every artist expresses himself. What do I mean himself? His creativity, his wisdom, his brilliance, his genius, through his mind, what he creates. Whether it's the book that he writes, or the ballad that he composes, or the symphony that he conducts, or the mansion that he erects. V'chuli v'chuli. In every field of art, and really every trade. How does the entrepreneur, the businessman, express himself as Chushim business? You look at how, you know, how he handles. So how does God express himself? Look around. Study the universe. <laughs> Study the universe. It's quite an impressive job. <laughs> As the Yerushalmi says, even if all citizens of the world come together, they can't create one yitush, one mosquito. One flea they can't create. Because study the brain of a flea and it can occupy not one lifetime, but many lifetimes. The brain of a flea, that's it. Which doesn't even look like there's something there. Ah, yes, Freksta, good to Shaila. Sadah Yerushalmi. But it says in Yerushalmi, they can't create one Yetush. So, does he express himself? And this is one Yetush, one flea. Never mind when you study the entire planet. Never mind when you study not only the planet, all the planets, and we study the cosmos. And even, whatever we could study. 
And everybody knows this. I mean, scientists, anybody who studies even a little bit of the world, it's astounding. It's astounding. The, the, the uniqueness of it, the extraordinary wisdom and harmony and brilliance, it's beyond what people imagine in all different types of pratim. So L'chayr, he expresses himself through the world. Does he express himself through creation? But here we're introduced to the concept known as tzimtzum, which Darizal introduced. And that's the point he's bringing out here, that it's actually the other way around. <coughs> creation does not express him. What some people call godless actually is a humbling. It's an act of, of, which is extremely humbling. When you humble yourself, it means you're actually stepping out of your natural potentials and you're lowering yourself to be able to be available to the need at hand. That's what anova is. What we call godless is really anova. In other words, creation is not an act of self-expression. Creation is more an act of self-suspension, of self-forgetfulness, of self-transcendence. And the reason is because if Hashem would express Himself in creation, then everything would appear as is, infinite. The fact that creation allows for identity and allows for a sense of separation and separateness is actually because creation is much more an act of another than it is an act of self-expression. It's about self-transcendence or self-suspension or self-forgetfulness, stepping out of the self rather than expressing. More than he expresses himself in creation, he actually, for creation to happen, he actually had to hold back, not express. He had to withdraw his infinity. He had to create an empty space that's devoid of his present infinity. That's where creation can happen. He had to hold back much more than to give. If he would actually express, like the artist does with the piece of art or the novelist does with the book, then existence would not be able to be there. So, that space that you call Hashem, wow, 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 actually it's a nov, it's not a wow. From your vantage point, it's a wow. From his vantage point, it's actually a very humbling experience, an act of absolute self-suspension, self-withdrawal, self-abnegation. It's his bittle, it's his bittle to be able to create space for us. In Tanya, he brings the Gemara Baba Metziah, fascinating that he makes this comparison, the Gemara brings there about certain Amirayim, that their bodies were pushed very big. And the Gemara asks, how was it possible for them to have children? Pushed in Gashmis, it doesn't seem like they were capable of doing, engaging in that which you have to engage to have children. They pushed couldn't. So the Gemara answers four words. Love shrinks the flesh. That's the Gemara's Lash. Love shrinks the flesh. So in Tanya, in Perik Memtes, chapter 49, the Balatanya uses this Gemara to describe what Simpson is. The love that Hashem has. He wants to connect with people. It shrinks his flesh. In other words, from infinity, he, so to speak, becomes finite. Because if he was infinite, there's no room for anything. Infinity excludes all reality. So, that's the Anova. The Anova is the humility to, so to speak, shrink and suspend his infinity to create space for the you and for the I to emerge to be able to engage in a relationship. So, even Soiv of Kalaman is already Anova. 
even Seiv of Kalaman is already a Pchina of Amava. Because Seiv of Kalaman is also a relationship with the world. It's just a transcendent relationship. But it's already a relationship. It's like Hashava or Mashra, that's a relationship that is Mahava all the worlds. But that itself is an Indian of Anava. Even that is a restriction, Lagabi his godless. That's what he's saying. Even a Mali and Seiviv is still a Pchina that the Midas Gdul is also Anava Veshiflis Lafon of Now, this has a lot of ramifications in life as well. Because when you think about it, in many ways, you know, the Chazal often say that Shir Hashirim, the Medrash says, Shir Hashirim is a metaphor for the relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people, which is like a groom and a bride, the lover and the beloved, Ani Ledoidi Vedoidi Li. The Rambam says in Hilchus Chuvim, Perik Yud, that uh, the whole Shir Hashirim is based on the paradigm of uh, that the relationship between Hashem and the human being is one of Ava, like an Isha, and an Isha who are, who are extremely enthusiastic about each other. And the Rambam is very, uh, very detailed and graphic there in Hilchus Truva Perik Yud about this. Now, the act of creation, in other words, was an act of, according to the Tanya and many others, this was a big yisoyed by the Talmudia Abal Shemtev, really from the Arizal, from the Zoyar, even more, it was basically the ultimate act of love, of marriage. If you want to say it in simple words, you could say that pre-creation if I may speak the, you know, a little irreverent, but I want to just convey the point, pre-creation you could say, God was a perfect bachelor. Now, a perfect bachelor, ask any perfect bachelor, they're always perfect. They're tall and they're slim and they're wonderful and they're impeccable and they're flawless. There's only, and they have everything going for them, right? There's only one issue with a perfect bachelor, and that is that he's a bachelor, which means he's not married. Because even in 2016... Marriage still necessitates another human being. I know it may change in the future. And after all, there is merit to say that you should be able to get married to yourself and get a tax discount, because most people have split personalities, so why not? But at least according to the the present conception or definition of marriage, you need another person for marriage. So the perfect bachelor is perfect, but what makes him imperfect is that he's perfect. (laughs) That's, the, that's his only imperfection. You're perfect and therefore you don't need anybody. You're self-contained. And a relationship requires somebody else. In many ways, the most perfect bachelor in history was the master himself. Perfect. Impeccable, flawless, infinite. <laughs> Certainly good-looking. All the money in the world. An extra house in Switzerland and Yerushalayim. Even a private. Everything going for himself. The only thing Kivayachal Hashem was missing was that he wasn't missing anything. <laughs> That was the only thing. No, there was no room for a relationship. So the act of creation was essentially God's bid for marriage. It was a proposal. Proposal is always vulnerable because she might say no. That's why pchira, free choice, is so important to Yiddishkeit. Free choice is not a calamity like we often teach people. Nebuch, we have pchira because Hashem says, you know, you have to choose, maybe you're going to go to Gehenna. No. Pchira is basically the idea that there's a relationship. (laughs) If you don't choose a relationship, it's not a relationship, it's a dictatorship. Malchusai birotzen kiblu alayhim. There's a difference between a Moshal and a Melech. Moshal is a dictator. So Fidel Castro would give seven hours of speeches, and you had to be there. You had to be there because that was part of the Malucha. I don't have to go so back to speak, uh, go so far to speak about dictators. Malchusai, a Melech is not a dictator. Malchusai is always birotzen kiblu alayhim. If I didn't choose you, you're not my melech, you're my moisho. You flex your muscles, you reign over me with your power. That's not a king. In our vocabulary, a king is a king. 
but in 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 Torah Malchusai Bechira is essential to the story of humanity because it's basically the whole act of creation was God had control. He wanted to not have control. That's what marriage is. Before you married, you have control. What happens when you get married? Ask anybody. You don't have control anymore. You give up. You create space for otherness. Now that has risks. That has a lot. Everybody knows it's full of risks. Because when somebody else comes into your life, the question is, what happens then? We all know that. You know, there's the old cynical joke, right? This guy, it's Wednesday night, and he tells his wife, oh, my friend, you know, Yankel is coming over for dinner. Just suddenly, Wednesday night, 9 o'clock. She's like, Yankel is coming over for dinner? The house is a mess. I'm not dressed. There's no food. You, what, are you, what are you inviting a guest Wednesday night without telling me? Are you crazy? Why in the world? And sure enough, Yankel is ringing the bell. He's right there, and the house is a mess. You know, men are clueless, and there's no food, and... She's like, why in the world would you do this? And he whispers to her, saying, coming in. Basically, the poor guy is thinking about marriage. So I just want to show him. <laughs> so so marriage, comes with, marriage comes with a lot of risk. But that's the only way you can have a relationship with somebody else. A relationship with somebody else means you create space for the other. So here's the big question. This is not a theoretical question. If your child would ask you in Shaduchim age, Tati or Mami, what is the prerequisite for what is marriage about? Is marriage about self-expression, or is marriage about self-transcendence? What is the ultimate purpose of marriage? Is it about an opportunity to express yourself? Is it about an opportunity to transcend yourself? What is it? Is it that through your partner, you will reach your realization of self, or no? It's an opportunity actually to forget yourself and create space for others. What would you answer? If your daughter or son was asking you this question, tell me what marriage is about. I want to know. Is it about forgetting yourself or is it about actualizing yourself? No? Really? Wow. I'll tell you why if you said that. So as good Jews, huh? It comes back to what you said in the church. It's actualizing the marriage. Oh, you mean Ketzad Merakdin. Ketzad Merakdin. So as good Jews, we want to say, you know, it's both, right? But there's a big nekuda here because it comes back to creation. Was creation an act of self-expression or an act of self-suspension? Marriage, essentially, is a replica of creation. You getting married is Hashem creating the world, so that's Him getting married. So when you say, it means that one of the deepest components in marriage as prerequisite was Hashem didn't express himself. He actually created space for the other. The prerequisite to a relationship is creating space for the other. Another. What we call the ultimate greatness of God. Meaning, look at the world. Wow. For him is actually the place where he's most concealed. It's an act of ultimate humility, of self-suspension, of lack of expression. Even though he's expressed in the world, but what's expressed in the world? What's expressed in the world is a very restricted form of reality. So therefore this teaches a person also that the prerequisite in a relationship is the the space we create for the other. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.